Well, good morning again. For those of you that I have not had the privilege of meeting yet, uh, my name is Josh, and uh, I do music here, and I was uh, very excited to be asked to preach this morning. Um, the song that we sang, uh, or I just sang just a minute ago, is very appropriate for what we're speaking about today as it focuses our attention on setting our lives aside for the sake of the gospel. And not only our lives, but be willing to set aside the lives of our families as well for the sake of the cross. Uh, Robert asked me about a week and a half ago to, uh, to preach today. And uh, as he was telling me about this, uh, rather after I picked my job off the floor, I was like, really? And on the third? You want me to do that soon? Um, I, he, he said that uh, it would be good for you all to get to know me and uh, for me to share a little bit of my journey uh, regarding this particular issue that we are speaking about today. Uh, but before we get into that, uh, would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Holy Father in heaven, we thank you for gathering your people together this morning. We thank you for promising to be with us. Thank you for never leaving us or forsaking us. Lord, I pray that you would help me to speak your truth this morning, that you would be clearly and accurately communicated as we open your word. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles... Uh, or if you don't, grab one of the pew Bibles. I'd like you to look on the outside of the Bible and notice what it's called. I don't know how many of us just gloss over these words, but on my Bible at least, and I think in all the pew Bibles, it says, Holy Bible. It's not just the Bible, it's, it's the Holy Bible. And that means that this book is a very special book. It is set apart. It is made holy. It's not like any other book you might pick up from the shelf. It's not like a book you might find in the bookstore. It is a, a holy book, and it's made holy because God has set it apart for a special task, a special work. It is a book that communicates his words to us. And God is in the habit of doing that very thing, of making things holy, all the way back to the very beginning of the story recorded in this book. If you would open it to page one, I think it's page one in the Pew Bibles. The book of Genesis is where we start off, and God immediately starts separating things. He starts setting things apart and, and getting things going right at the beginning. Verse four of chapter one God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from darkness. God, God set these things apart. Verse six. He separated the waters from the waters. Verse 7, he separated again. We keep reading in verse 14 of chapter 1. There were lights in the heavens to separate the day from the night. So God's starting to separate these things. And he continues to do this all the way through the end of the creation account, where we read in chapter 2, verse 3, So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all of his work, that he had done in creation. So God takes one day out of seven and makes it holy. He sets it apart for a very separate and specific purpose, that of focusing on the Lord. Well, as we continue reading throughout the Old Testament, God continues this pattern. He has a temple that is separated for his worship. He separates out a tribe, the Levites, to be a special tribe for him, separates bulls, dishes, curtains, uh, all these different things and we read in Leviticus chapter 20 that God eventually separates out a people 
an entire people group for himself. In Leviticus chapter 20, verse 24 through 26, we read, I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. So here we see God separating out the people of Israel as a holy people different from all the other people in the world. And this people were given a sign. This sign was instituted well before the book of Leviticus, back in the time of Abraham. It was a sign that said, we are the people of the true God and no one else is that people. It was a bloody sign, but a sign nonetheless God gave them to mark them out as holy. And as some of you may have guessed, this was the sign of circumcision. And this is really where the story of infant baptism begins. Now, if I had heard that statement about three years ago, I would have been like, okay, what? Um, You're talking about holiness, and then you're talking about circumcision, and then you just kind of drop infant baptism on us. What in the world does that have to do with, with circumcision? That's the exact question that I would have asked about two and a half, three years ago. But a lot has changed in my life since then. And this is part of the reason why Robert wanted me to share this message with you this morning. See, I didn't always believe in infant baptism. I, I was raised as a, a Baptist. Uh, I wasn't, I don't know if I was a regular Baptist or a Southern Baptist or a general, general Baptist. There's lots of different Baptists. I was just a regular run-of-the-mill Baptist. I believed that you needed to profess Christ And then once you made that profession of faith, you would follow in obedience into the waters of baptism. And I fully embrace this belief that only professing Christians should should be baptized until just a couple years ago when I began to, to study this issue. And it's always dangerous when you pick up the word of God to just start studying something because you never know where it might take you, how it might change your life. And that also is the exciting thing about studying God's word. But as I began to study this issue just a couple years ago, I I already had the foundation, which many of you, I hope, already have, that this book is one book. Yes, there are two sections. There's an Old and a New Testament, but it is one book, one story of one people of God, of God redeeming his people, setting them aside as a special people for his own possession. I believe that God is consistent, that he's unchanging. The same God in the Old Testament It's the same God that we have today in the New Testament who works the same way, whether it was through Jewish people in the Old Testament or Christians in the church in the New Testament was the same God. I had these individual pieces in place, but I did not see the connection between one sign and the other sign. I didn't see the connection between a sign God placed on a people in the Old Testament and a belief in infant baptism in the New Testament. It just did not make sense to me. But because that connection really is the pivotal piece, at least for me in my journey of understanding this belief, that is what we're going to focus on this morning. And a majority of our time is going to be looking at this first sign of holiness, that of circumcision, and then we'll work through a couple other signs that God gives us as well to mark us as his holy people. So if you are not already there, I'd encourage you to turn back in your Bibles to Genesis, and we're going to walk very quickly through Scripture and see how these things connect us together. So Genesis chapter 12, and we're just going to be blazing through a lot of these passages. 
Genesis chapter 12, the call of Abram. The call of Abram. Abram lived in the land of Ur. Um, It's in the Middle East. And God decided for no apparent reason, I'm going to call Abraham and set him apart as one of mine. Calls him out of that people and says, go to the land that I will tell you. In chapter 15, verse 6, we see here God affirming and restating a promise that he made to Abraham, that I will make you a great people, I will make you uh, to have offspring, I'll I'll enlarge your household. Abraham says in verse 3 of chapter 15, behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Verse 4, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, this man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Right there. Abraham becomes a Christian. Okay. He didn't know Jesus yet, but God counts Abraham's faith as righteousness. And this is affirmed in Romans chapter four, where we read uh, in verse two and three, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. But what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was given the gift of faith, and God credited righteousness to his account. Well, that promise of offspring starts up in in chapter 17 in a little unorthodox way. Um, Some of you know the story of Sarai and Hagar and how Abraham uh, conceived a son, but not with the wife of promise. But in chapter 17, as Ishmael comes on the scene, as soon Isaac will arrive in just a few chapters later, God institutes this special covenant with Abraham, this covenant of circumcision. He says that my covenant is with you in, verse, in chapter 17, verse 10. It is with you, and so everyone attached to you should bear this mark, this sign that you are part of my people. This mark of circumcision is to be applied to Abraham, to be applied to his children, to his servants, his household, anybody that joins in his household, that is what God asks him to do. God begins a pattern here of having the household head stand as a representative for his family. Abraham was the one that was set aside as righteous, and yet everyone in his whole household and his family was marked with this sign. Now, does this mean that everyone in Abraham's household was was saved, was a Christian as Abraham was? Does this mean that every Israelite that was marked with circumcision was saved? Well, I would say no. And we have many examples in Scripture of people that were not followers of God, even though they were circumcised. Uh, We look at the man we just mentioned, Ishmael, who was circumcised in verse 23 of chapter 17. Uh, Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised. And yet we know Ishmael grew up to wander away from the Lord was not one of God's chosen people. One generation later, we have Jacob and Esau, both circumcised, we would assume, as Abraham faithfully followed this covenant, and yet Jacob was the child of promise, and Esau wandered away from the Lord. As we continue to look through the history of Israel, we see dozens of wicked kings also following in the tradition of being an Israelite, and yet they did not follow after the Lord. And I think it's safe to assume that many of them did not end up with the Lord in heaven after their death. In many of these instances, the people confused 
the sign, the sign of circumcision with the thing that it signified. They thought that just because we have this sign, it means that what the sign shows us is true. Um, circumcision, it's, it's a physical sign that pointed to an inward spiritual reality that these were God's people. But just because you had the sign didn't mean you were necessarily a part of God's people. And here's the way that I like to think about it. Um, say you have a nice Rolex watch. Okay, this is not a Rolex watch. Um, but let's just say, for instance, that you had a nice Rolex watch. That is a sign of wealth, correct? I mean, if you see someone with a Rolex watch, you would say, wow, that person is wealthy. And that might very well be true. A lot of wealthy people will purchase something like that to show that they are wealthy. But if you are wearing a Rolex watch, does that automatically mean that you are wealthy? No, it does not. You could wear the watch and be pretending that you are wealthy. You could try to put off that, that, um, that persona that you are a person of wealth, but really you just have a watch. And the same is also true. You could be very wealthy and have no outward sign of it as well. So the, the sign does not necessarily mean that what it signifies is true. So we have to be careful that we don't confuse those things. Circumcision works the same way. It's a symbol of a reality that the individual person belongs to God's people. And Paul says something similar in Romans chapter 2 where he writes uh, in 2.28, No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. So Paul here affirms that being Jewish, it's not about the physical signs. It's not about circumcision. It's not about your ethnicity. It is about the inward reality that you are one of God's people. Um, some of you may know this, but I actually am, am Jewish. Uh, I'm not a practicing uh, Jew uh, in, in my religion. Otherwise, I probably would not have been invited to preach to you this morning. Uh, but my ethnicity is Jewish, uh, just like you might be French or, or Russian or any other kind of salad dressing. I am uh, I am Jewish, but it would be foolish of me to say that just because ethnically I'm Jewish, I automatically have a ticket to heaven. I am one of God's people. It has nothing to do with our outward appearance. It has everything to do with the inward reality that we are set aside as one of God's people. Again, as we look at this issue, who and when did God choose to mark in this way? Was it the people that after a lifetime of, of obedience, God said, yes, you have proven yourself worthy. You get the sign of circumcision. Was it the people that gave evidence and professed their faith that, yes, I believe in the God of Abraham? Well, in Abraham's case, that was true. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteous and then he was circumcised after. But for his children, for Isaac, for Ishmael, they never gave evidence. They never professed a faith in Christ or a faith in the God of Abraham, and yet God still had them marked with the sign of circumcision. God still marked them as if they were a part of this internal reality. Now, we weren't the ones who decided to do it this way. God was the one that said, this is how I am establishing this mark. Anybody who is a part of the household of faith receives this sign. But why the sign of circumcision? Why something so bloody? Why not like a hand stamp, you know, uh, something less painful or maybe a, a cool tattoo? Um, why something so bloody? Well, it was this way because it pointed to another bloody sacrifice that needed to happen. 
in, in the Old Testament days when an agreement was struck between people, when a covenant was made, one of the things that commonly happened, and we see this uh, pictured for us in Genesis 15, is that the two parties that were coming to an agreement, they would take animals and they would cut them in half, spread them apart, and they would walk down the middle together, symbolizing that they were in covenant together. The bloody animals signified that if either one of us are going to break this covenant, our fate will be the same as the fate of these animals. We will be no better off than an animal that has been cut in half. And so when God and Abraham make this covenant, God starts doing this the same way. He asks Abraham to get the animals ready, cuts them in half, spreads them apart. Abraham keeps the birds off of them from flying around. And then as they're about to make this covenant, this agreement, God says, okay, Abraham, I got this one. And he knocks him out, puts him to sleep, and God himself walks through these, these animals, saying basically, if this covenant is broken, if, if, one, of, if, if one of us fails at this, the, the sign, the bloody sign, the, the consequences, they only fall on me. This covenant relies on me. It does not rely on you, Abraham. And this will be important later on as we continue to see this, this bloody covenant, this sign, point us forward to a sacrifice that would need to be made later. Hebrews 9.22 also affirms this. It says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So we see that blood needs to be shed. Sin needs to be taken care of. That is an integral part of this covenant where God is making a people his own. And so this bloody sign of the covenant points us forward to another bloody sacrifice that would need to be made. Okay, thanks for the history lesson, Josh. Um, Good to know some Old Testament rituals, but again, what does this have to do with baptism? This is all about circumcision. This is all about stuff that we don't even do anymore. What about baptism? And this had been my exact response for many years. I'd heard messages on Abraham, on the covenants, on New Testament baptism. I just did not see the connection. One was Jewish, one was for the church. One was Old Testament, one was New Testament. Well, the reality was that I had the connection right in front of me, and I already had the foundation of one story, one people, one Bible. I already believed that the church was God's intention all along, that God never planned on having one people of Israel, and then, oh, they messed up, scrap that idea, let's start over with the church. It was always one plan of God redeeming a people for his own possession. I was, I was trying to make the leap right from from circumcision right to baptism, and I miss the crucial piece that connects both of them, and that is the next sign of holiness that we are going to look at, the sign of the cross. I was skipping Jesus. Do you guys ever do that? You kind of skip over Jesus, and you're like, all right, how do I apply this? And we, we forget to focus on the cross, but that is really what we need to do to see the connection between Old Testament circumcision and the idea of baptism. So we skip forward 2,000 years from the days of Abraham in ancient Israel to the time of Jesus Christ. We've now had thousands of years of the covenant being broken. Israel didn't worship God alone. They were chasing after idols. They've had wicked kings. They didn't keep up their end of the bargain of worshiping God as holy. They were not being a holy people. And so the covenant curse needed to come down. This sacrifice needed to to happen, but God had a much bigger plan. He wasn't going to just take the care of the sins that had already taken place with Israel. He was going to take care of everyone who would be his people, not just Old Testament Israel, but New Testament church, everyone who would ever believe in his name. 
circumcision, the cutting of the animals in the covenant with Abraham, they were both pointing to the bloody sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Remember the covenant between God and Abraham? God alone walked through those, saying that I alone am going to bear the consequences if this covenant is broken. The curse would not fall on Abraham and all of his descendants. It would fall on one of his descendants, the ultimate descendant, the ultimate offspring, the one who was a son of Abraham and also God himself. God would take on this bloody sign at the cross. And because of what Jesus Christ did at the cross, we, we meaning us believers in Jesus Christ, are now circumcised if we are in Christ. Not in a physical sense anymore, but our inward reality reflects that we are, in fact, part of the circumcision. Paul explains this in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, where he says that circumcision is not a matter of external things, but it is a matter of the heart. In Philippians chapter 3, we see that we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And in Colossians 2, we read, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. So, in a sense, we are all still circumcised spiritually. In other words, the inward reality that physical circumcision pointed us to, the inward reality of being a part of God's people, that's what, that's what the sign of circumcision points us to, that we are a part of God's people, is still the inward reality of being a Christian. We, as sons and daughters of the king, as children of God, are part of God's people. But now the outward sign has changed. God has no longer given us this sign of circumcision, although he calls it circumcision sometimes. We now have a new sign, and that is the sign we're talking about today, the sign of baptism. So we've seen a sign of holiness, of of circumcision. We've seen the ultimate sign of God's holiness at the cross, and now we see baptism as another sign of God's holiness and the holiness he, he requests of us. So Matthew 28, 19, familiar verse, go into all the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In Acts 2, 38, baptism is again mentioned in the, the sermon that the Apostle Paul gives, and you can flip there if you'd like. We're going to be there uh, off and on over the next few minutes. Acts chapter 2, the end of his sermon uh, the, the brothers, everyone says, uh, what shall we do? And Peter says to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 8, more are baptized. Chapter 9, the Apostle Paul himself, after he is forgiven of his sins, seeks water and is baptized. In Acts chapter 10, uh, Cornelius, the first Gentile, is baptized as well. So we are given this sign of, of baptism now in the New Testament. But again, how, how are they connected? Where do we see this connection of baptism and circumcision? Well, the, the pivotal passage that we see is in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. Let me back up to verse 9. In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. This is Jesus Christ, and you have been filled in him who is head of all rule and authority. In verse 11, in him, Jesus Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands 
by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. Did you see what it says there? That we were circumcision, we were circumcised in a circumcision made without hands by the circumcision of Jesus Christ. So when Christ died, when he took on the bloody sign of the cross, Paul says that was Christ's circumcision. He was circumcised there on the cross. But how are we circumcised? We are circumcised by being buried with him in baptism. That's what verse 12 says. Having been buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him. So how are you circumcised? Through baptism. How was Christ circumcised? Through the baptism of his death. One reality, the reality of being God's people, the reality of being set apart as holy for him, signified by two different signs. One circumcision, now baptism, both of them centered on the cross. The inward reality has not changed. We still need a changed heart to be saved. Only the outward symbol of this reality is different. So if these two signs are tied together, which I believe they exactly are, if baptism and circumcision are two signs of the same reality, then why wouldn't the application of these signs be tied together as well? Why wouldn't we apply them the same way? We don't need to do circumcision anymore biblically because the thing it pointed to had happened. It, it was a reminder that an ultimate sacrifice needed to take place, and that happened with Jesus Christ. Now we have a new sign of baptism which points us back to that same death and burial that took place with Christ. We have one sign, both of them pointing us back to the cross. In fact, we are, are continually tied to this idea of being the same as God's Old Testament people. We, we see this in 1 Peter chapter 2, 9-10, through 10, where Peter uses the same Old Testament language, but now about the church, where he says, You are a, royal, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness, into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And this really was the key piece in my own understanding of baptism that, that linked them together, that we are the continuation of God's people. He has expanded the promises now from just Israel to include all of the church. And if God was consistent in how he worked with his people through the Old Testament, why would he all of a sudden change that as we got to the New Testament? For thousands of years, God had been marking his people as set aside for, for himself. He'd been marking the head of the household and all the children in that community as well. Again, this didn't make them Jewish. It was merely a sign of the inward reality. It was an outward sign of the inward reality that was taking place. And so if God applied and said, let's apply this sign to children, why would God change all of a sudden and say, no, this sign is no longer for children. It is only for believers. It is only for those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. But again, this brought us back to that, that tricky question. This is the one that I get asked the most about this issue. If this outward sign of baptism is supposed to reflect the inward reality of being one of God's children, then why would you baptize someone who wasn't a child of God? 
Why would you baptize someone that hadn't expressed that inward reality of, I am one of God's people? That is a really good question. And all I can do is say, that's what God asks us to do. In the Old Testament, we could ask the same question. Why would God place the mark of circumcision on a people when they had not done anything to show that they were truly Jewish, that they were truly followers of God? And yet that is exactly what God asks and commands Abraham to do. Put this mark on yourself and on your children, for you are a people set apart for my own possession. In Acts chapter 2, verse 28 through 39, or 38 through 39, as we read earlier, uh, Peter continues on in his statement when he's asked, what should we do to be saved? He says, repent, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Peter affirms that this gift is not just for you who are believing today. It is for your children after you. It is for all who God calls to himself, not whom call on God necessarily, although that is essential as we'll talk about in a sec, but those whom God calls to himself. That is who receives this gift of baptism. God has given us these holy signs to mark out his people as separate from the world, and I believe both circumcision and baptism are connected. One internal reality, again, being God's people, signified by two different things, both pointing us to the cross. So what? Good, good lesson on, on baptism, right? Um, I'm thankful I get to, to preach this in a church where we affirm this, this belief. Um, but yet, what impact does it make on our lives? What do we walk away from today? Is it just a better knowledge of baptism? Well, God has given us another sign of holiness, and this is where we will conclude today. And that sign is it's our lives. Yes, he's given us the mark of baptism, but he calls us to set aside our lives as holy as sanctified, as separate from the world. So what does your life look like? What does my life look like? If you've been marked with this sign of baptism, does your life reflect that inward reality of a changed heart? Are you wealthy and your, your fancy watch reflects that? Do you say, yep, I'm, I've been baptized. I'm a Christian. See, I have the sign. I, I, I must be one of God's people. But you're not really wealthy. You don't have a life that backs up the fancy watch you're wearing, the baptism that God marked you with. Romans 12.1 says that we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, and that this is our spiritual worship. So have you presented your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God? You know, what you believe about this particular issue is important, I would not say that it determines whether or not you're a Christian. I would not say that it is as core as believing in the deity of Jesus Christ, but it is important. Our study of this issue led to a change in this belief. It led us to find a new denomination. It led us to resign from the church that I was serving at, to seek something. We didn't know what. It will lead us to have our own children baptized here and just just a few weeks, and we're very excited about that. But what's more important than that? Whatever you personally believe about baptism, Scripture is clear that this sign is empty 
without a life that is set apart for God. Baptism will not save you, just as circumcision did not save those in the Old Testament. Our own confession, the Westminster Confession, affirms this in chapter 28 where it says that salvation doesn't come through baptism, nor does baptism mean that you are or ever will be saved. It does not confirm that. The next section affirms again that salvation still only comes as a gift of God to whomever he wills in his appointed time. Baptism is not some magical fairy dust that we can sprinkle on our children or on ourselves. That means that we are saved. Only the blood of Christ shed for us will save us. The baptism or the circumcision that Jesus Christ went through on the cross is the centerpiece of that sign, just as it is the centerpiece of our salvation. So we are called to be diligent to affirm our calling and election. We're to be diligent in saying, does my life reflect this sign? Don't rely on baptism, especially on one that happened so long ago, as your only affirmation of faith. As we read earlier, our lives are to be holy. And so we can ask this question, is your life holy? Is it obvious that it is set apart from the world? And that can be a very discouraging way to end a message because all of us look at our lives and we fall far short. We fall way below the standard of holiness. Even maybe today, a wonderful day where we got to sleep in an extra hour, we, we still fall short of being holy. As we examine ourselves, as we focus on, on our sin, we can, we can get so discouraged, so depressed that, man, I will never measure up to this. How can I know how can I know that God has truly saved me? In my life, I keep struggling with sin every week, every day. The important thing is to look to Jesus Christ and not to look only at ourselves. Because if we look at ourselves, we will surely end in discouragement. Even as we sin and repent and sin again, God does not look at us. He looks at us clothed in Christ's righteousness. That is symbolized again by that sign of baptism, that we are God's people, that we can trust in Jesus Christ's sacrifice, not our own sacrifice. So I think it's fitting that we end focusing on Jesus Christ and worshiping him for that sacrifice. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do thank you for setting us aside as your people, for marking us with this symbol of baptism. And yet, Lord, we ask your forgiveness for perhaps relying on it too often. For thinking that because we have that sign, we don't need to have a life that is reflective of that sign. But, Lord, we pray that you would help us to look to Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, that we would trust that he will give us the grace to live lives that are holy. God, we thank you for that gift of grace. And even as we close our time together, we pray that you would give us hearts of gratitude for what you gave us through your son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.